Hello, I'm Caitlin. And I'm Kerrigan. And this is What a Nightmare. So today I have a doozy of a case for you. Um, there's quite a few people, lots of names involved. So I'm going to do my best to um, put everything together and make sense of it all and not be too confusing. Uh, it takes place in a college town. College is supposed to be like the greatest time of your life. God knows that I had a good time. <laughs> I had too much fun. <laughs> That's probably yeah, why I didn't well. finish. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, I met some of the most amazing people. I gained some of like the greatest friendships that I've ever had, made awesome memories. I even met my husband there. So it worked out in my favor. Uh, early college was a little less fun than my later years, but it was like a rite of passage, you know? Uh, I know that you never lived in a dorm, no. but I did, and it was terrible. Yeah, that's uh, why I didn't want to do it. <laughs> I knew your experience. Yeah, like they're dirty, and you have to like fight to find the perfect time to shower because there's only so many shower stalls and like how mine was, we shared uh, a bathroom with two other rooms. So two girls to each of those rooms, you know, it just, it was a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and like they would, the shower would always be taken every time that I was like well, needing now, to shower and get ready. Now I feel like I basically did live in a dorm because <laughs> whenever I would stay with Alex, it was three boys in one apartment. And you know how three boys are. Disgusting. Disgusting. They're gross. Mm -hmm. And then like me and Annie would stay there and it was always a fight for the shower. Yeah. <laughs> and so like, but I mean, Annie and I would go in and we would be like, tidying up, cleaning things, and we're just like, they're so gross. Disgusting. <laughs> and, like, the other thing that I remember the most was the freaking fire alarms. The amount of times oh, that you would God. be, like, finally getting a good, decent night's sleep, and then you'd wake up because some asshole down the hall was smoking a joint <laughs> or like you know, vaping or doing something doing something that they weren't supposed to and setting off the fire alarm very rarely would the fire alarm go off like at night for a for like a, a drill or something you know what i mean um but still i remember being woke up because of that a lot and we would all have to wait outside for the fire department to come, give the all clear, say like, yeah, it's okay, you God, can go back that in. Suck. <laughs> yeah, especially in the middle of winter, yeah. I had to stand outside in the cold, and we weren't allowed back in until they would tell us it was okay. Oh, that's shitty. I mean, I get it, but <laughs> yeah, I don't know. This case just really made me reflect a lot on those early college years, 
and like the fun and the terrible and just made me think of how this really could have happened at any college town and it's so senseless so without further ado i guess i'm gonna tell you a little bit about it heck yeah (laughs) um so it is in 2003 on may 4th 2003 at 408 a.m Students of Western Kentucky University were rushed out of Hugh Poland Hall for a fire alarm. And it's the middle of the night. No doubt, everybody probably felt like it was a huge inconvenience. (laughs) Um, And then they saw firefighters carrying out a body wrapped in a blanket. Oh my god. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And they identified her as 18-year-old freshman Katie Autry. Firefighters called for medics, and they provided oxygen to her. Students stood stood silently, gathered, just like staring in horror, right? Uh, Katie's body was badly burnt. She was black from her neck down to her thighs. And uh, firefighters reported that her face appeared, that she had been brutally beaten. So let's rewind a little bit. I want you to get to know a little bit about the person that Katie was. She uh, actually was going by her middle name. Her full name was Melissa K. Autry. She was born to a single mother in very poor circumstances. Uh, Her mother, Donnie, named her Melissa after Melissa Gilbert. Do you know who Melissa Gilbert is? No, I don't think so. She was the actress who played Laura Ingalls on Little House on the Prairie. Oh my god. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, Katie had one younger sister named Lisa. Their home life was pretty rough. Um, Lisa described Katie almost like a mother figure. Uh, her mom, Donnie, really struggled with mental illness. And at a fairly early age, the girls were placed in foster care. Well, that sucks. They still had a relationship with their family, even though they were in foster care. It sounds like the foster family that they had was very supportive and um, wanted to help facilitate reunification of the Mm -hmm. family unit while also providing stability and providing them with a clean, well-to-do household. Yeah. Um they were raised in a christian home um katie was a cheerleader in high school she was blonde she was beautiful like you need to look at some pictures of her she is so freaking gorgeous she was also the first member of her family to attend college oh yeah um up to this point actually um her cousin barbie said that she pretty much paved the way for their family because up to that point, they'd only had one member of their family even graduate high school. Oh, wow. So when Katie graduated high school and then decided she was going to go to college. And that's such a hard thing to do, like to break mm-hmm. break that cycle. That generational your, cycle. For your family. So yeah. it um, sucks that this is the outcome of her trying to break that cycle. Yeah, to break the mold. But... Um, Katie wanted to be a dental hygienist because she wanted to make people smile. Oh, my heart. (laughs) Ruined me. Uh, so Katie chose Western Kentucky University because it was still relatively close to her family. 
she would be able to go home on the weekends and visit when she was able to. She was also working two jobs while in college. Uh, she actually emancipated from the foster care system. She wanted to make her way on her own. She was going to school. She was working at a smoothie shop. And because she wanted to get on her own and have her own money, have some good income, she also took a job as a dancer at a like a striptease kind of club called Tattletales. Oh. That kind of gets harped on later in the case when, you know, it, you see it all the time in cases where they almost try to tear apart the victim. Yeah. As if their sexual promiscuity had anything, had anything to do with to, it, yeah. and it didn't. Like, that is the most minor part of all of this, so I'm not going to harp on it too much, because I don't think it matters. Uh, so Katie's family and friends all described her as being super fun and adventurous. She initially started out her college experience with a pretty shitty roommate situation. They did not get along. Her roommate would make fun of her for sleeping around, specifically with black guys. I guess, like, she just really was drawn to black males. And she, unfortunately, had been given a terrible name where residents of Poland Hall would call her the hoe from the second flow. Oh, my God. Yeah. Before I continue, screw these racist people for slut-shaming a girl who is doing the same freaking thing that everyone else was doing in college. Yeah. It's a time for you to have fun, experiment, date around, find who you like, what you like. Fuck it. Yeah. So, we don't slut-shame in this house. Absolutely not. <laughs> Moving on. Thankfully for Katie, her crappy roommate led her to meet who would become her best friend, Danica Jackson. Danica Jackson also had a pretty crappy roommate early in her freshman year, and she bonded with Katie over their living situa situation woes. This led them to go to their RA and request a roommate swap, and they lived together. They ended up moving into a dorm together. Oh, that's nice. uh, Danica was also a cheerleader, and they became so close that people would say they would finish each other's sentences. You never saw one without the other. They were like sisters. Yeah. They were so close. And, like, this just warmed my heart because it made me think of my college roommate. Yeah. My college roommate, Katie, moved in as a random, and she is my platonic soulmate. We were obnoxious, so much so that people would say, like, it's the Katie and the Caitlin show all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, holy crap, did we love each other. So if Katie Autry and Danica's bond was anything like the one that I had with my college roommate, I know that this had to be the most devastating thing. So on May 3rd, 2003, Danica and Katie went and saw a movie. They saw What a Girl Wants with Amanda Bynes. Oh, nice. <laughs> Such a good movie. Then they returned to their dorm room to pregame and get ready to go to a fraternity party later that night. They were drinking golden grain mixed with Sierra Mist. Yeah. I didn't know what golden green was. At first, I read it as Goldschlager, and immediately I, I felt my stomach roll because I remember doing shots of Goldschlager and ugh, can't do it. 
I'm not, I'm not in those early 20s anymore. I'm not 18, 19. I can't, I can't do shots like I used to back in the day. Now I I nurse it. I'm just like, I'll take a little sip here and there. No, thank you. But uh, golden grain apparently is more like Everclear. Ew. Yeah. Which also. Yeah. Not good. (laughs) Also made me want to regurgitate my lunch. (laughs) Probably classier than the nasty four locos that I would drink to pregame. <laughs> uh, I I did not do the four locos, not for me. Uh, I didn't do it after my freshman year, <laughs> and that's exactly <laughs> why. So Katie and Danica were going to this frat party at the Pi Kappa Alpha House. They all called it Pike House. And once again, I'm getting flashbacks of the big house parties with beer pong and mattress surfing down the stairwell. So much fun. (laughs) Uh, Katie and Danica went to Pike House with intentions of meeting up with some boys. At this time, Katie was casually seeing this guy, Maurice Perkins. Maurice was black, a computer science major. He was a wide receiver for uh, Western Kentucky University. uh, And Katie was in love with this guy she was so infatuated with him and it seemed to be one of those situations where she had stronger feelings for him than what he did for her which i mean it happens it's early college you guys are 18 and not ready to settle down yeah not ready to settle down and that's kind of the stance that he had of he wanted to to date around still and have fun yeah right so while at this party Katie got pretty drunk, a little belligerent, and she ran into Maurice, and they got into a fight that caused quite a scene, so lots of people saw this fight go down. She apparently wanted to dance, and Maurice didn't want to. Uh, Bystanders heard her yelling at him, saying things like, forget you, and I hate you. Oh, God, the typical drunk girl saying. But because of the scene, the Pike frat guys were like, Girl, you gotta go. Yeah. We will get you home. And they actually had their pledges for the fraternity acting as sober drivers. They were the DD for the night so that people could have fun and the pledges would drive them home. I mean, that's nice. What a responsible fraternity. You yeah. never hear I responsible say, fraternities. <laughs> yeah, that never. definitely did not happen in my college experience. <laughs> no, definitely not. No. So uh, they arranged for their pledge to be her sober driver home, and Danica was going to go home with her, but she had been schmoozing up on this guy that she had been talking to, and he invited her to hang out with some of his friends. They were going to go to his apartment. So because, you know, she's getting a ride home, and this seemed like somebody that they could trust, she was like, okay, I'll see you later. I'll, I'll come home, and... I'll I'll deal with you later. The pledge was a boy named Ryan Tane, but all of his frat bros called him Possum. When Katie got into the truck, there was another boy slumped over, drunk, named Stephen Souls. So Stephen was a local guy, a high school dropout, 20 years old with a ninth grade education. And I was trying to figure out, you know, how would this guy know anybody at this party? But it's because where he was from, the town next to Western Kentucky University. And he loosely knew who Possum Payne was. 
the truck that Possum was driving people home in belonged to one of Stephen Soule's friends that he was staying with gotcha. to go to this party. The truck belonged to a boy named Brian Moon. Uh, so Hugh Poland Hall, Poland Hall was only a two-minute drive away from the Pike House. Not a very far drive, so Katie loads up into the truck, and so Possum Payne is driving, Stephen's in the center, and then Katie is by the door, because her <clears throat> drop-off is first, mm. and then the dorm that Stephen is going to is further down. Possum dropped off Katie in the parking lot, watched her walk to her door, and then Possum began to drive away. While driving off, Stephen reportedly said to Possum, I'm going to go back and holler at her. But he continues to drive ahead, drops Stephen off at the dorm that he was staying at, and left. Meanwhile, back at the Pike House, the party was starting to be broken up by police, so naturally, what do people do? Scatter! (laughs) (laughs) So this is where the story might get a little bit confusing, because I really want to tell it by the timeline. I think that the timeline is super important for how the court proceeding goes later. And with everybody all in these different places, there's going to be a little bit of jumping around. So stick with me because, you know, timeline's important. The rest of Stephen's friends that he came with, Brian Moon, the owner of that truck, Brian's roommate, Damien, and then their mutual friend, also local townie, Lucas Goodrum, went back to the dorm building that Brian Moon and Damien shared. They checked in with the RA and they signed Luke in as a guest. That log shows 2.15 a.m. The RA remembers seeing them all come in and they're talking with her and at 2.18 a.m. they call Possum to have him bring the truck back and also so that they can drive Lucas back to his car where they all rode together to this party. When Danica left the party after the police broke it up, she was with that cute boy that I was telling you about, and she went with their friends to a local McDonald's. And while she was there, she was like, you know, I haven't heard from Katie. She hasn't called me to let me know that she made it home. I know she was drunk. I just want to make sure she's okay. And all of the people there are trying to calm her fears and be like, she's fine. She's just drunk. She's probably asleep. All is well. She was still pretty concerned, though, so she tried to call Katie's cell phone and called their dorm phone, their landline, and whenever she called the dorm phone, it was 2.26 a.m. When Katie answered, apparently she sounded like she was laying face down on the pillow, just very muffled, and Danica asked, you know, did you you make it home? She said, yeah, I'm home. And then in the background, Danica could hear a door shut. And Katie said, Danica, I'm scared. Somebody came into the room. Danica said, well, who is it? Who is it? And Katie in her drunken state, she's slurring her words. She was like, I don't know who it is. I just want to go to sleep. I just want to go to sleep. And Danica ordered Katie to put the man on the phone. The guy answered the phone and goes like, it's all good. It's all good. I'm just, I'm the person that drove her home. I want to make sure she was okay. I just wanted to make sure that she was fine. She threw up and I wanted to make sure she got into her bed. She's still pretty drunk and she's 
very sleepy and I'm just concerned. Yeah. So Danico's like, okay, okay, got it. Well, make sure she's like on her side, propped over. That way that if she vomits again, she doesn't aspirate that she's okay. Yeah. It made sense. She did receive a ride home and she said that at that time when he handed the phone back to Katie, she continued to just repeat herself and say, I just want to go to sleep. I just want to go to sleep. And then she heard another male's voice in the background. A different one? A different one. There were two male voices that she said she heard and the door closed. And the phone call ended at 2.28 a.m. Danica still felt a little bit uncomfortable given all of this, so she tried to call somebody else from down the hall, one of their other dorm mates, Mm -hmm. to check on her, but the phone call went to voicemail. At 4.08 a.m., like I said, the fire alarm went off. Western Kentucky University police and the fire department show up to investigate, and they found water was pooling from the door of room 214. When they entered, everything was dark. Obviously, whenever fires happen, they cut off electricity. They go to very bare minimum. And they were pleased to find that the sprinkler system had completely like got away this fire. Everything was cleared up. Everything was wet. Yeah. And there was some fire damage and some water damage. But, you know, the sprinkler system did its job. One of the firefighters, while he was looking around, he saw something was sort of hanging from the ceiling. And he thought, like, it's got to be one of those ceiling tiles that's just sagged, mm-hmm. probably wet. It started to fall down. Upon closer inspection, he found that it was a Afghan blanket that had been wrapped around the sprinkler head. And then I, I would imagine that that would be, like, a lights are flipped on, like a light switch is flipped on for him, in a sense, because he was finally able to take the scene in for what it was. Mm-hmm. He starts, like, looking at things a little bit closer, and he sees that there's this pile of blankets and clothes that are still smoldering, and there's an arm sticking out of it. Oh, that is so terrible. So he freaks out, he shoves this pile, this smoldering pile, off of this person and found a woman's body with a shirt wrapped tightly over her face and then he saw the rise and fall of her chest and realized she's still alive oh my god that oh i couldn't imagine literally the worst way to go i think is burning alive that just sounds absolutely miserable slow and painful it's yeah horrifying So this firefighter calls for assistance, saying that he has a victim in need, and when medics get to her, they load her up, they go to a local hospital, and she was later transferred to Vanderbilt Medical Center's burn unit in Nashville. It was reported that while en route, Katie just kept repeating, just take me home. Oh. I'm telling you, this is heartbreaking. All of it is terrible start to finish. Yeah. Upon arrival to the hospital when she first got to that local one, Katie was intubated and sedated. And with burns like this, it's so imperative that you maintain a patent airway because as those tissues start to swell and the burns are starting to take effect, you can lose your airway. And that's oftentimes how people will die. Other than like from smoke inhalation and infection in the healing process, 
if you lose that airway, they will die pretty quickly. So when medical professionals were assessing her, they found that she had burns only to the top side of her body. Like I said, from her like neck down to her thighs. Mm-hmm. And she had black eyes, bruising to her face. She looked like she had been brutally beaten. Her belly ring had melted to her stomach. Oh. She had two puncture wounds to her neck. And they found that that t-shirt that was covering her face was tied around her neck. Uh, They determined that the accelerant was hairspray that had been sprayed all over her body before being lit. And this part's a little bit graphic, so if anybody needs to skip ahead, like this is a trigger warning for you, but do it right now. They found that antibacterial hand lotion had been placed inside of her vagina, inside of her handbag, and then smeared all over the doorknob to make it more difficult for people to get into the dorm. Immediately, everyone in that room knew this is not an accident. This was no mistake. It is definitely on purpose, and this was an attempted murder. Police began investigating and interrogating all of the possible suspects, starting with Maurice. Everyone knew that they had had a fight. Everybody saw it. It was very loud and open, belligerent. Yeah. But they determined that Maurice had an alibi. He left the party shortly after Katie did and was with his friends. Cell phone records all confirmed his timeline and his location. He was not the guy. Danica had been at the apartment of that boy that she had been with at the party. And investigators found out that Ryan Possum Payne had had driven Katie home. He recalled seeing her walk into Poland Hall alone. And they found that he also had an alibi after he had been driving all of these students home and he gave the truck back to Brian Moon. He went with friends and played video games with them until 5 a.m. He had been with a group of people who all confirmed this. He said that whenever he had dropped off Katie, that there was one other person in the truck with him and they should look into him. Stephen Souls. So when investigators spoke to Stephen, he said that he had been drunk, that he didn't really remember a girl in the truck, and that he did not know anything about Poland Hall. He only went to the dorm building that belonged to his friends. He said that Possum dropped him off at that dorm building and was picked up by another friend named Brian Ritchie at 2.15 a.m. Possum Payne confirmed that that was the time, around the time that he had dropped off Stephen. And Brian Ritchie reported that, yes, he had picked him up at 2.15 a.m. So all of these people are saying that they've got alibis and there are other people that are saying that are confirming, they're, they're confirming these, this timeline. So it makes no sense, right? They're kind of at a loss of what do we do? But and, if there's two guys in that room and did this to her. Who's the of, other guy? Of course, like, if. Let's say it is a Steven guy. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But they could easily try to be each other's alibis mm-hmm. and say, well, we were here when they actually did it. I don't know if that's the story, but that's how my mind's playing yeah. out. <laughs> be suspicious of everything all the time. Always. Everything. <laughs> so meanwhile, Katie Autry's family and foster parents all rush to the hospital upon hearing this news. Katie clung to life for three days, but on May 7th, 2003, Katie passed away at 7.10 p.m. 
That's so sad. Yeah. She was surrounded by her sister, her aunt, and her cousin at the time of her passing. I'm glad that they were able to be there yeah. with her. As, as tragic was, as yeah. that's going to be for them and how hard... Like, I couldn't imagine If watching... there's no other way for this to end, if there is no other outcome, at least they were given the opportunity to say goodbye. Yeah. And to try to make it as peaceful as possible. Yeah. Rather than it being in her dorm room on fire. Yes. You know what I absolutely. mean? Absolutely. And for her passing, like, for her to have her support system wrapped around her. The people she loved most. Yes. At the time of her passing, approximately 150 students were gathered for a candlelight vigil praying for Katie's recovery. And while there, an RA announced that the support service was now a memorial service. So, also heartbreaking. Bet they feel real bad about slut-shaming her now. (laughs) I bet they do. They should! (laughs) (laughs) So after the news broke out of Katie's death, the police received a phone call from someone saying that they needed to recant their statement regarding Katie Autry. Brian Ritchie. Brian Ritchie met with detectives saying like, I don't want to do this over the phone. I got to meet you in person. He meets with detectives and said that he was asked to lie and wanted to believe that his friend had nothing to do with this. But he said that the more he tried to pry from Stephen, you know, like, what's going on? Why am I lying to these people for you? Stephen was just changing his story and becoming more suspicious. So, like, just a quick pro tip here. If your friend that's involved in the investigation of the rape and murder of a girl asks you to lie to a federal agent, then don't do it. they're not innocent. Don't do it. Anyway, detectives arranged to bring Stephen Souls back in for questioning. At this time, Souls began to change his story again. And he said that he had been with Katie in her dorm. He claimed that they made out in the truck on the way to Poland Hall and went in with her to make sure she was all right. You know, he's concerned. He then told detectives that they had consensual sex, but then she got sick and so he left because she was throwing up. He even confirmed that it was him that spoke to Danica on the phone. Then investigators began to lay fingerprint cards on in front of him like a tarot spread and said, well, if it was consensual, why did we find all of these fingerprints on things that we did? Like the hairspray can. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Kind of damning, huh? The pressure is on. Souls began to repeat over and over, I did not hurt that girl. I did not hurt that girl. And then began to claim that when he went to leave, a man was in the hallway but he didn't know who that was. With more questioning, Souls finally admitted he knew who the other man was, Lucas Goodrum, the other townie friend. So when Stephen officially implicated Luke, he began to say that Luke, Lucas, met her at the party and liked her. Stephen said that he came into the room and wanted to quote-unquote get some too. But when Katie said that she wasn't into it, Lucas became very forceful and violent. Stephen also claimed that Luke had threatened to hurt him and his family if he did not do what he was told. After claiming that Lucas had raped her, he said that Lucas made him sexually assault Katie as well. So the sex that he had said was consensual was was actually not. not. (laughs) But he was forced to do it. He was made to do it. So... Stephen 
also said that uh, Lucas made him spray Katie with the hairspray before she was lit on fire. But he didn't light her on fire. That one was Lucas. He just did the spraying of the accelerant. Oh, my God. Stephen was then arrested after this interrogation. So Lucas Goodrum's name was not unfamiliar to police for a multitude of reasons. He was a spoiled rich white kid whose stepfather was the heir to the Dollar General Company. But most importantly, he was known to have a bit of a violent past and had some anger issues. In fact, he had only been attending the party that night because he got into an argument with his girlfriend and had hit her. What a piece of shit. Yeah. So he was, he fled from that argument with his then girlfriend because he thought police were after him. At this time, police began to try to get warrants for Lucas Goodrum's bodily fluids and to search his car. Stephen uh, also had agreed to uh, submit a sexual perpetrator kit test Mm -hmm. that was the same thing as the warrant that they were trying to get for Lucas. So later that day, police picked up Lucas Goodrum and took him to a local hospital for that kit to be performed. And then he was driven to the police department for the interrogation. While there, he was asked about the night of the party. Lucas was actually very forthcoming. He was like, yeah, I was there and I was with some of my friends. And I do remember that girl that would like burnt in that fire. She was there. And I remember her getting into a fight with her boyfriend. So they're like, yes, tell us more about that. He said he remembered her being very drunk, that she was dancing dancing with a lot of her friends, trying to get other people to dance with her. And they asked him, did you dance with her? And he said, no, no, I didn't. But she did brush past me and she rubbed my stomach as she walked by me. He then remembered Possum took her home. He said he remembered seeing them load her up into the truck and her driving off. And that's the last thing he knows about that. He just remembered seeing her in the news and recognized that that was the girl. So they asked, what did you do after the party? He said that he went back to the dorm of his and Stephen's friends. Mm -hmm. And Stephen didn't show up there. He said that while he was there, they called for Possum to pick him up and take him to his car. And he went to his father's house in Scottsville, Kentucky, just a town over. Whenever they asked, do you ever get violent with women? He admitted that he had a history of anger issues, but he went to court-ordered anger management and now self-identifies as fairly calm. Funny. After you just punched your girlfriend. Yeah. (laughs) Then investigators said that they believed that he was lying and that there would be video evidence in these dorm rooms to prove that he was a liar. And Lucas immediately became very defensive and stood by his story, said, I was not there. I hung out with these guys at their dorm, got picked up by Possum, got in my car, and I went home. I went to my dad's house. I did not have anything to do with it. I went home. What time did he go home? Um, that I don't know off the top of my head what time Possum. I think that whenever they called Possum to have him uh, come pick up Lucas, Mm -hmm. he was still driving students home from the party and said... So it was probably a little while after he had already dropped Katie off. They said 
that it took about 20 minutes for him to get to finish dropping off for possum to finish dropping off these people and pick him up but i don't have the exact time that he said possum picked me up at this time we got to my car at this time but there's more timeline that will happen okay was everybody able to corroborate like his story so as far as him being at the dorm with brian moon and his roommate damien mm-hmm. the ra confirmed yeah i remember seeing lucas he was pretty quiet yeah. he was there okay. so that is corroborated and then possum also corroborates his story of yeah i drove him to the parking lot where his car was dropped him off we talked about his mustang and lucas was Almost like talking up, trying to sell his Mustang to Possum, Mm -hmm. but it was just one of those passive boy conversations. Oh, yeah. So people were able to corroborate this part of it. And police asked him, uh, asked Lucas, why would somebody lie? Why would somebody implicate you? Why would they attack you? Why would they hate you so much to implicate you? He exploded and said that people are jealous of him. He has a rich mother and stepfather. He has a pretty girlfriend and a nice car. So he's a victim. Oh my God. At a quarter after midnight, Lucas Goodrum was officially arrested in connection with the murder of Katie Autry. In the preliminary hearing, both Souls and Goodrum were denied bail. They were not allowed to get bail at all. The media began to portray the two of them as like rich versus poor. Lucas was portrayed as being very cold and unfeeling. And then Souls was portrayed as very meek. And he's a victim. He was forced to do these things. And once these court hearings began, Lucas Goodrum's ex-wife, because he got married super young, was brought in to testify on his violent behavior. She described him as being a choker and asked, did that girl get choked? Because Lucas Goodrum is a choker and that he could be very physically violent. She actually even had a restraining order against him. Oh, wow. They got married super young because they had a kid together. And yeah, obviously that relationship ended. And a lot of this is very much he said, she said, and very much subject to to speculation. But you know what you can't argue? Science. Yep. On August 28th, the DNA results were finally complete from those rape kits that had been completed. The vaginal swabs that were taken from Katie were a match for Stephen Souls. But not but Lucas not Goodrum. Lucas Goodrum. 94 hairs were collected from the scene, and not a single one matched Lucas Goodrum. That's so crazy. Yeah. So then it makes me wonder, who is Stephen mm-hmm. protecting, maybe, so that he can say that it's Lucas, but it's actually somebody that maybe he doesn't want involved or exactly. going to jail. So, however, given this evidence, the prosecution claimed that no DNA evidence was ever found on Goodrum because he wore a condom, and that the fire and the water damage could have destroyed any potential DNA evidence that was left behind. Okay. So, all all those hairs, then, mm-hmm. are they trying to say that they're Stevens? Well, they're not all Stevens. Like, 94 hairs, so, like, I'm sure some of them are probably Katie's, and who but knows, like, like, if they're old you know, hairs can, that belong. You can, like, 
Mm-hmm. What is it? Cross-examine? Like, yeah. you can mark that off the list of these were Katie's mm-hmm. pairs and this is... Or maybe this is some other person that was, like, visiting, you know? It's a live a live-in space. I'm sure they had lots of guests and stuff. But of those hairs that were collected from the scene, of the 94 hairs that were collected, not a single one was Lucas Goodrum's. Okay. But, however, the prosecution, like I said, they, they were like, yeah, he wore a condom, and there was fire and water damage. It could have destroyed any of that potential evidence. I'm no statistician. But I feel like this is a huge stretch, and any chance, like, there, there's, there's, the chances of all of the evidence belonging to Lucas Goodrum being destroyed, but not... Stevens? Yeah, Stevens. Slim to none. Yeah, exactly my You point. would find something. Yeah. Something. Like, fingerprints, something. Something, yeah. And... But they didn't. <laughs> and... In March of 2004, because court cases take time, Stephen Souls was offered a plea deal. They would remove the death penalty from the table in exchange for him to testify against Lucas Goodrum. <laughs> On March 23rd, Souls officially pled guilty to the charges. He pled guilty to rape in the first degree, rape in the first degree by complicity, sodomy in the first degree, sodomy first degree by complicity, arson first degree by complicity, and robbery in the first degree because also during this time, Stephen informed police without any prompting that, yeah, he stole some of Katie's jewelry and it was at his grandmother's house. (laughs) Stephen Souls was sentenced to life in prison without parole and under oath committed that he committed these crimes because he was threatened by Lucas Goodrum. Lucas Goodrum's trial was set for March 9th of 2005. So here we are almost two years later. This is really frustrating. Yes. Because, like, as much as I do think that Lucas sounds like a piece of shit, like... A douchebag? Yeah, a major douchebag. Like, I don't believe that it's him. Like, there's just not... There's not the answers there that Mm -hmm. I need. Exactly. So, and I know everybody wants answers. Mm -hmm. You want to know who did it. Yeah. But you can't make it a person that it's not. Yes. And you shouldn't. People should make sure that you've got the right guy. Exactly. And that's why there are supposed to be... Supposed to. (laughs) Supposed to be things in place of... In order to sentence these people beyond a reasonable doubt, you know. However, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Sorry. No, you're fine. I share similar sentiments, but I don't know that a lot of people agreed. Lucas's trial, like I said, was set for March 9th of 2005. In this trial, they relied heavily on the fact that he had been held this whole time based on the word of one man or the defense was anyway holding on to this like you are holding this man based off of words yeah and one not statement. evidence yeah however uh there has been no evidence at this time whenever they did that initial interrogation with lucas goodrum 
they did a similar thing where they had laid out some fingerprints and they're like, these are yours. They were not. They belonged to one of the interrogators. They were trying to see if he would fess up. Mm. The videos that they claimed that they would have to tell him that he was a liar, there were no videos. The prosecution was not backing down from this, though. They brought up the fact that Danica had claimed to hear two male voices. They even brought in an inmate from the jail where Lucas Goodrum had been held, mm-hmm. where this inmate went on the stand to say he claimed in conversation Goodrum admitted to killing Katie Autry. Once again, like this is a whole lot of somebody else's word against says, his. She said, kind yes. Of thing. And Lucas's defense lawyer drew attention to the point that Lucas Goodrum's story has not changed this entire time. But you know who has? Stephen Souls. His story changes every single time you ask him. He's a compulsive liar. And people are just eating up this victim mentality. When Lucas Goodrum took the stand on March 16th, 2005... He provided new information and evidence to prove his innocence. He produced a receipt for $4 in gas and a 99-cent soda at 2.40 a.m. Why didn't he produce that? I don't know. I don't know, like, how it got so far into this. And he's like, oh, yeah, I stopped here. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know if it's because... That had not been brought in or brought up. I I don't know. But they were able to produce the actual receipt. And he said, I had nothing to do with this murder. And I'm being framed by the actual murderer. Mm-hmm. After two weeks of trial, the jury deliberated for approximately three hours. Returning a verdict of... Not guilty. Wow. So, That's honestly surprising. Yeah. Especially given that, you know, a jury of your peers seemed like a lot of people were not completely convinced that he was not part of this. Yeah. I I feel like in hindsight, now looking through, uh, through everything, you're like, yeah, how did they hold on to this man for as long as they did? Yeah, because he, he wasn't able to... Like You were being held in jail based off of somebody else's words. But whatever. Here we are. The courtroom erupted into tears, but for two different reasons. Many of which, like Lucas Goodrum's family, because Luke was being released. But then by many others, like Katie's family, tearful because they believed that this murderer... This guy that hurt their family member yeah. is free to go. They really believed he was part of this. Personally, I do not think that he had anything to do with it. Yeah. Do I think that he is probably a douchebag and a scumbag? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. He's guilty of a lot of things, but but the murdering murder. somebody, no. Yeah. And even like whenever he was, whenever he was on the stand, uh, in his own defense, he admitted readily. I am no choir boy. I am no saint. Yeah. I have made mistakes and I own up to those. But I did not hurt this girl. I did not do this. It, 
Oh, if you're going to readily admit like, yeah, I beat up my girlfriend. I went to anger management because I had anger issues. I have had these issues, but I don't know. I, I just don't buy it. it. It's just, I get their frustration. Mm -hmm. You, you just, you want it to be someone, but I'm telling you, I just don't, I don't feel like it's him. Yeah. There's just not enough there. Nope. And I really wonder about Katie's family now. Yeah. Now that time has sort of healed some of those wounds, Mm -hmm. I wonder if they're able to look at things through a new lens. Are they able to look back and see Stephen Souls was playing victim and just didn't want to fully own up to his monstrous actions like a scared little bitch? Yeah. Stephen Souls is a manipulative little shit. Yeah. But he is serving a life in prison, so... Good. That's... (laughs) That's that. (laughs) But I just... I wonder if they changed their opinion over time of... Did Lucas have anything to do with this? Because they seemed to really think he did. Mm -hmm. And even in post-interviews, after he was released... He still comes off as a douchebag. I watched uh, <laughs> On the Case with Paula Zahn, and she interviews Lucas Goodrum, and he, like, laughs about things, and he's just... I'll gosh, have to watch it. Yeah, he just we'll seems to... like such a tool. Oh, but yeah. you can be a tool and not a murderer. So yeah. <laughs> I just I don't think that he did it. But the, the right guy is sitting in prison and did any other evidence or any other information come forth about a second guy Mm-mm. and souls won't speak up about stoles uh, stoles, stoles. <laughs> steven souls still I, as far as i can tell is claiming that it was lucas but I still Maybe think he that doesn't want to change his story because they'll I... be like, nobody will believe me. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. We won't. <laughs> Boy who cried wolf. No, I, I don't think that it was that there was a second person personally. I think that especially because this is after the phone had been handed back to Katie. Mm-hmm. It's Maybe possible. He was talking. Yeah, I don't know. I it's hard to say. But I personally don't think that there was a second person involved. I think this is, I'm in trouble, but I'm only in trouble because I was made to do it. They made me. I don't think that anybody made him do this. I think he did this on his own volition. And and he is a terrible person. In the very beginning, he said it himself. I'm going to go back and holler holler at at this girl. girl. Mm -hmm. Like, there was enough there to really point in his direction. And had I been on the jury for this case in Lucas's defense, I don't think that I would be able to convict him without a reasonable doubt. Like, I genuinely think that there's enough doubt that you cannot convict him of this murder. Yeah. There's no physical, concrete evidence linking him to this crime. Wow. Yeah. I mean, like, that's, that's a lot. But I I hate that it came down to such a messy, like, point pointing fingers at everyone. But, mm-hmm. like, what a piece of shit. 
Like, I just can't get over all the terrible things he did to that poor girl. Yeah. You know? And she had so much to look forward to. Yeah. She really loved working with kids. She just looked so bubbly and bright. Yeah. And it's so sad that she never got to grow up. She never got to experience all that life had to offer her. Yeah. And it's all because some dirtbag took it away from her. Yeah. And that's why I'm saying it also feels like this could have happened at any college campus. Yeah. I mean, like, stories like this really do make you think back of all the times when you you think that you're safe and, yeah. like, you're, you're okay. And then, like, there's always that possibility that you're not. And mm-hmm. then anybody could walk in and do Hurt something. you at any time. Yeah. Yeah. I walked home from work in college all the time. Yeah. I would walk home from the bars all the time. And thankfully, that never happened to me or anybody that I care about. I don't recall anybody ever getting murdered while I was in college. Yeah. And I am so freaking grateful for that. But it's so sad that there are shitty people like this in the world yeah. that take that away, that comfortability. You're out there trying to have fun and get your education and work and somebody just takes it away. Yeah. So, Did you ever find any information on her roommate? Danica? Uh, about, yeah, about like how so, she is now or what her life's like. So she was also on that ca- that on the case with Paula Zahn that I got a little bit of information from and watched some of the court case. I don't know now how she is, but in she was still fairly young and you can tell she was still very broken up about it. Yeah. Um I I hope that she's well. But in that interview with Paula Zahn, she says, I think about it all the time, that what if I would have gone home? I would have rather it been the both of us than her to die alone. Oh. And that just screams survivor's guilt. Yeah. So, I I don't know how she was supposed to feel, though. Yeah. That's your platonic soulmate. That's your best friend. And you were supposed to be there, but you weren't. And you feel that guilt. Yeah. Even though she had absolutely nothing to do with it. She was also yeah. a young kid trying to have fun. Living have, her life. Yeah, she was living yeah. her life. It is not her fault. No. And I hope... Anyway. I hope she knows that. Yeah. I hope she knows it is not her fault that she was doing what every other college girl does. She thought that her roommate was safe. Yeah. So, I don't know what she's doing now. I hope she's well. Um, Katie Autry's mom, Donnie, did pass away Mm -hmm. uh, at the age of 51. I don't know what her sister's doing now. You don't really see a whole lot about her. Mm-hmm. In most of the interviews and television shows about this case, you see a lot of her cousins, mm-hmm. but nobody else. So I don't know what to really make of that. But maybe her family just wants to move on, yeah, live in their privacy, and overcome this tragedy. But... Yeah, understandable. Yeah, for sure, for sure. 
well, I'm sorry that I gave you a super tragic case for you to think on and dwell on before you go to work tonight. Yeah, but <laughs> it's all right. I've got one for you next week that is just going to tear you apart. Great. <laughs> because researching it, I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> I don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> but, I just want to put this away. But it's just, you see it mostly, like, these terrible cases with <laughs> such good people, yeah. such amazing beautiful families so i think that's the hardest thing yeah about almost all these cases that we've done for sure it's people that you always will wonder what could have been yeah what could have who would they be be today today? well thanks for sharing that story like it was a lot but thanks for everybody to listen to us as well we appreciate everyone's support And if you want us to talk about a specific case or share any of your dreams or nightmares that we might talk about on here, send us an email at whatanightmarepod at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram at whatanightmarepod. And we have a Facebook page. It is whatanightmarepodcast. And our TikTok username is at what.a.nightmare. Catch us next Thursday. Good night. Good night.